And today we will study one of those psalms that points towards the resurrection of Christ. And especially as we all see how the resurrection of Christ really secures our joy and our eternal gladness in Him. So let's read the, the text together. Psalm 16, we'll read the entire chapter. This is the reading of God's Word. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's a reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves this afternoon under your word, and we pray that you will speak to us, that you will give us an eternal hope, an eternal joy. Help us, Lord, to turn our eyes away from even our sufferings, even the trials that we face, Lord, and turn our eyes to the resurrection of Christ and to that hope that we have, Lord. One day we will see you, not just in spirit, but in a, a resurrected body ourselves, where there will be eternal joy and gladness forevermore. Oh Lord, we ask for your spirit, the spirit of joy, to fill us, to help us, Lord, to truly rejoice in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, beloved, according to the Gospels, Christ was crucified on the Friday, and in the tomb on Friday night, Saturday, and then the early mornings of Sunday, and then on that third day, which is also the first day of the week, um, Christ was ro as raised from the dead. And that's why we call our Sundays the Lord's Day, precisely because of this reason, that on the Lord's Day, on the Sunday, it's the day that Christ ro rose from the dead. So there's a sense where every Sunday we're celebrating Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday we are reminded of this new creation that Jesus is bringing in and of which the church is the first fruits. So there's a sense where every Sunday when we come together, we are experiencing a foretaste of heaven itself, even in the midst of a Genesis 3 world, right? And beloved, what is so amazing about the death and resurrection of Christ is that this is not a New Testament teaching. This is not just found in the New Testament. This has been prophesied and foretold by the Old Testament. Listen to these two verses. Jesus himself interprets the Old Testament like this. Luke 24, verse 44, he says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about whom? About me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Listen to verse 46. And he said to them, the disciples, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. This was written where? In Moses, in the Psalms, and in the prophets that Christ should suffer and be raised on the third day. 
And so it should be no surprise when we read our Old Testaments that we should be constantly seeing the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. That's the right way to read the Old Testament, right? And Psalm 16 is one of them. It's one of those that we can look to to see Christ. And specifically, this is a messianic psalm. This is a psalm that points towards Jesus. In fact, the apostles themselves take, took verses 9 to 11, those last couple of verses of, of our psalm, and applies it directly to the resurrection of Christ in their preaching. Peter, for example, in his very first sermon after being filled with the Spirit, says this in Acts 13.25. He says, For David says concerning him. There's the key. Right? And when the Holy Spirit interprets it for us, we should listen. The Holy Spirit says to us, this psalm is about him. It's about Christ. But, although we know that this psalm is going to point to Christ and it's about his resurrection, I do think there's another danger we should be careful of. And that is that we shouldn't study the Old Testament and just almost run as quickly as we can to Christ as well. Right? We should really study the Old Testament in its original context. We should know what what David meant the first time when he wrote this. Remember, David wrote this before Christ came and before he died. So this meant something to David. This meant something to the original audience. So although we love Charles Spurgeon, and he's probably one of my, my biggest heroes, but he was famous for saying, you know, whenever you are in the Bible, make a beeline for the cross. <laughs> right? So you, you, you get the, this, this almost like, um, you know, over-interpretation, just like running to Christ and then kind of missing the point. Missing the point of what this text was meant to teach us. So, so we're not going to do either or. We're going to do both. We want to study the psalm in its entirety, know what is David's point in the psalm, and then apply it as the apostles applied it when they interpreted it. So, so let's just look at the psalm in its entirety. What are some of the main themes of the psalm? Now, if you've just been listening carefully, you would have listened that there is the main theme of joy. Notice verse 3 when it says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my, what? Delight. Look at verse 9. It says, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Look at verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of what? Of joy. So this is a psalm of joy. This is a psalm of David seeking, delighting, and wanting. His heart is hungry for joy. And the good news of this psalm is he's finding that joy in God himself. That's one of the key themes we should be taking out of this psalm. But secondly, the second main theme, that's a theme of security or safety. Look at the verse 1. Verse 1 says, Preserve me, O God. Look at verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Look at verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells. Secure. So do you see there's the theme of joy and then there's the theme of security. And really these two themes are connecting. Think about it. Can you really have true joy, true lasting joy if you're not safe, if you're not secure? Think about if you're living in a beautiful house and you have all these enjoyments in your house, and but you're constantly worried somebody's going to break in. Right? That, that unsafe feeling robs your joy. It robs you of even enjoying the good things right in front of you. But if you feel I'm secure, I'm safe, that also secures your joy. That also gives you security in your joy. And that's really what makes the psalm so amazing. Both David's joy as well as his security, he seeks in God. He seeks that in God who never changes so that his joy is secure. 
And that really, that's why the title of the sermon really is, this is the secret to secure joy. This is the secret. This psalm is going to help us see and find where to go for our joy, but that joy to be secured. So we can divide our psalm in four parts. We will look at David's supplication, David's satisfaction, David's security, and David's secret. Those are the four parts. And we're going to spend most of our time with the first two points and then move quicker from, verse, from the, sec- the third point. So the first point we want to look at is let's look at David's supplication. David's supplication in verse 1. Look at his supplication, his prayer that he's praying in verse 1. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, what makes the psalm interesting is that that's the only prayer request in the entire psalm. That's the only thing David prays for. The rest of the psalm is him just recounting the blessings that he's enjoying from the Lord. So this is one prayer request for security, and the rest of it is just thinking about the blessings he's enjoying from God. And the prayer is very simple. He's saying, Lord, preserve me. Protect me, guard me, watch over me. Remember, since David was the king of Israel, and not just the king of Israel, he was a righteous king of Israel, there was not a man on earth, or at this time, that was more in danger than David. So this was a very good thing to do. He was looking to God. He says, God, I'm trusting in you. I'm depending on you for my safety. And the verse continues like this. It says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take Refuge. That's, just, that's simply saying, Lord, protect me, for I'm trusting in you. I'm, I'm seeking my refuge in you, in you. Even though I'm the king, even though I can find my refuge in my money, or find my refuge in my army, or find my refuge in my wisdom, or in other things, Lord, that's not the things I'm looking for. That's not, I'm not running to that for my safety. I'm running to you. I'm, my refuge is in you. I'm trusting you. I cast these other things away as unworthy of my trust. These things are sinking sand. Instead, I put my trust in you. You are the solid rock of my heart, and I trust in you alone. Another psalm, just page over to 20. Another psalm of David, page 20, verse 7. David says, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So, beloved, the point of this first point is simple is that when we, what we can take away from David's supplication is that you and I too should go to God for both our earthly needs, but as well as our spiritual needs, as well as our spiritual preservation. Beloved, how often do you feel burdened by life on your shoulders that you feel like, I can't continue anymore. I need somebody to preserve me. Right When the weight of your trials is so big, you, you can cry out, Father, preserve me, help me. Father, help me to continue to endure, to not cave in under the weight of this burden. Personally, I've often been tempted with this feeling, even in the ministry of being a pastor, when I'm struggling with my own sin, when I have to carry the weight of the precious sheep of Christ, or when I'm pursuing the wandering sheep of Christ, and I see the burden, and I feel the burden of broken families, and broken marriages, and broken lives. The temptation is to want to cave in under that and say, Lord, who is sufficient for these things? Who can endure? Maybe for you it's your work. Maybe for you it might be just your responsibilities or, your, or your, you are currently in a trial that you just don't see the light in the tunnel. When is this trial going to end? Or perhaps even just being a Christian, right? Jesus said, follow me, pick up your cross. Now imagine a cross on your back. Sometimes following Christ is hard. Sometimes it feels like this cross is too heavy for us. Even though he did say, my burden is light, 
And um, he did say that, but yet still, th there's a struggle. And then we can pray, God Almighty, Father, help me, preserve me, keep me in this trial, in this suffering. Oh, loved ones, don't we have the precious promises of God for our preservation? Isn't it true that even as we cry out to God to preserve us, that there's another one praying for us? There's another one praying for our preservation? And those prayers are always answered. We have the Lord Jesus Christ praying for us, interceding. Father, keep them. Father, let their faith not fail. I love this, this closing promise that, that Paul, at the end of his life, when he wrote his final letter, 2 Timothy 4.18, he says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely. Hear the word for safety there again? He will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. We get the grace, God gets the glory. That's why we can be sure that this will happen. And in the very text where Paul quotes this psalm, I love what he says about David in Acts 13, 36. He says this, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. After David did everything God wanted him to do, he died. Isn't that comforting? <laughs> That's a, such a comfort God, you will not die until God is done with His purposes in your life. You will be alive. He will preserve you until His purposes are done. There's another verse that says, As your days are, so your strength will be. As our days are, so will our strength be. We will have the strength we need to finish the race and to keep the faith. So, beloved, look to God, both for your physical needs, but also for those spiritual needs to persevere, to preserve, to to endure till the end. So that's David's supplication. But now let's look at, secondly, David's satisfaction. Let's look at David's satisfaction. And as I've mentioned, verse 1 was the only prayer request. Now he's moving on to just describing in what he is satisfied, what is the blessings of God that he enjoys. And so we can see why David wants to be, wants to be preserved. So he's praying for preservation, but then I, I believe the rest of the psalm really tells us why he wants to be preserved. It is because David is, has found a soul-satisfying joy in God alone. So there are two places we can see here where David finds his joy. The first person David is satisfied in is he is satisfied in God. David is satisfied in God. That's what we see in verse 2. Look at verse 2. It says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So Joe Rigney wrote an excellent article on, on this verse and just describing the different aspects of what it means that um, we have no other good apart from him. But let me just highlight two things that it means. And the first thing is, when David says, I have no good apart from you, first thing he says is, God is the source of everything good. So he says, Lord, I have no good apart from you. He means that quite literally. They, I would have nothing good in my life if God did not give that to me, not one, even the very breath you are taking now, you would not be able to take if God did not grant it to you. Listen to Acts 17 verse 25. It says, Nor is God served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath. And just in case we missed something, and everything. <laughs> so, Life, breath, and everything else. Every 
bite of food, every drink of water, every laughter with your family or with other brothers and sisters, every single ray of joy you enjoy comes from God who is good, comes from your heavenly Father. Listen to James 1.17. It says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So, beloved, know this. You can say this quite literally. Lord, apart from you, I would have nothing. Nothing good. Not even oxygen, not food, not family, not relationships, not church, not the Bible, not the Holy Spirit. Nothing good. I would have zero if it was not for your grace. But that is not all that David includes in this verse. And there's a second thing I think it means. is Not just does God, is God the only source of his good, but he also means here that nothing, would be, nothing good would be good without God. Of all the good things that he has, those good things would not be good without, apart from God. That's what he says, he says Lord, apart from you, I have no good. It's not just the source, but even everything he enjoys is only good because God is in it. Because he sees in everything he enjoys, God himself is looking and longing for God. In other words, if David could have the whole world, if David could have heaven itself minus God, it would be held to him. And beloved, that's really a test for us. That's really a good way to test yourself. Would you be content to go to heaven without God? That's the test to see if, if you truly are saved, if you don't just love the gifts, but also love the giver. I love the Hebrew in this verse. The Hebrew literally says, my good is not beyond you. My good is not beyond you. It's as if, God, you are the boundary of my good. Everything good, it stops with you. You are my boundary. You see, if something other than God is your boundary, if Let's say something temporary or something on this earth is the boundary of your good. Let's say the boundary of marriage. If I can just get married, then I will be satisfied. Then I will be happy. But the problem is once you're married, that boundary stops and it's limited and your joy ends. Or maybe if I only can have children, then I will be happy. And once you get children, you realize they, they don't make your life easier. They make your life harder and you have to discipline them and they don't bring you joy as you thought they would. Or make your boundary money, make your boundary pleasure, make your boundary your studies or your achievements or success. Or, and the moment you get that or the moment you've achieved that you realize my boundary stopped, my joy is done. It's empty, it's vain. Remember the man that really did have it all, Solomon. Solomon had everything and he, what, what did he say? He says, vanity of vanity. That's, that's if you make your boundary something under the sun. But if God is our boundary... Now it's infinite because God is infinite. There isn't a boundary. When God is that boundary, our joy is infinite. Our joy will be ever increasing and it will never end. And here's perhaps the best illustration to just make it clear that even the good things we enjoy is not good without God. Recently, I think it was like two weeks ago, I can't remember, uh, I had to endure the intense suffering and trial of being without my wife for a week. And that was... Without my, my wife and my boys, my two boys, they were in um, Pretoria celebrating their great-grandmother's 80th birthday. So I was all alone, right? And now, now the thing is, I still had many good things. I had food, I had clothing, I, I had internet, I had a Bible, I had fellowship with the saints. I had very many good things. But it's as if all of them just lack salt. 
like I'm eating my food, but it's like, where's Deborah? Where's my wife? Like, I'm like enjoying the saints, but I don't have my wife with me. Or uh, the day is done and I'm ending the day and it's just silent. I don't hear my boys jumping all over me, right? So in a, that, that's just what I mean. It's like, I have good things, but they're not good without her, without my wife. Now, in a very faint way, that's just a very, very, very faint way to say, that's how the believer feels about God. That's how the believer feels about Him. Remember, marriage, even marriage is a shadow. Even marriage is a shadow. Christ is the substance. So even if you're not married, you can still understand this, that without Christ, life is meaningless. Every good thing is like the ray of the sunshine. And believers need to learn how to trace the, sunshine, the ray back to its source and say, Lord, this joy reminds me of that joy. Right? All the good gifts we have is like the, the rays, but God is the sun. Or like Jonathan Edwards said, is all the joys we experience is like droplets and God is the ocean. He is the reason why anything good is good. He is the reason why we can have joy and peace. So that's what I believe he means when he says, Lord, apart from you, I have nothing good. I wouldn't have any good thing. And also every good thing I have wouldn't be good without you. But notice, don't forget the flow of thought. I think we sometimes make this mistake of just reading the Bible in these blocks. Remember what he's praying for. He's praying, number one, for preservation. Lord, preserve me. Keep me. He's praying for an earthly need. And then in verse 2, I believe he gives us the motive. Why he's praying like that. Lord, protect me because I want to enjoy you. I want to praise you, Lord. I want to be secure so that I can glorify your name. I want to find my joy in you because I have no good apart from you. I believe the Lord's, the Lord's prayer is really set up like that in the same way. What's the first line? It says, Father, hallowed or let your name be honored. And every other prayer comes back to that. It always comes back. Lord, let your kingdom come. Why? That your name might be honored. Lord, let your will be done because if your will is done, then your name is honored. Lord, give me my daily bread because how can I honor your name if I'm, if I'm hungry? How can I glorify your name if I don't have my needs met? I want my needs met so that I can glorify you. Lord, forgive me of my sins. Why? Because how can I glorify you if, if I'm sinful, if there's guilt on my back? Lord, forgive me for your name's sake. Forgive me that I may glorify you. You see, that's how we pray over everything. All of our practical needs, all of our spiritual needs, it always comes back to this great good. Lord, save that person. Why? Because we want one more voice to sing your praise. Lord, protect me on the road. Protect me on the flight. Protect me on my travels because I want to glorify you when I get to the other side. I want your name to be lifted high. Lord, help me in my work. Help me in my studies. Help me in these things. These are my earthly needs. These are my earthly desires. Why? Because I want to glorify your name. You see, so that's really the motivation behind this prayer. Now, here's a crucial question we need to, need to answer. is How can we move from that first line that says God is the source of everything good? Because God is good to the believer and the unbeliever alike. To... Moved from that to saying, every good thing I enjoy is not good to me apart from you, which only believers can enjoy. How can we move from that to the second part? And I believe our text gives us a clue. Look at verse 2 again carefully. One word in verse 2. It says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Do you see? It's when the Lord 
the Lord of all good, the fountain of all good, the Almighty. He's not just up there. He's not just far removed from us. He's not just all of these attributes. No, He's, he's not the Lord. He's my Lord. Lord, it's, and, and notice what it says. He's speaking to God. In the beginning, He says, I say to the Lord. He's not saying this to other people. He looks God's, God in the eye. And he looks him in the eye and says, Father, you are my good. We want to say with Song of Solomon 2 verse 16, My beloved is mine and I am his. And so we are, beloved. So we are. And that only happens through our union with Christ. That's the only way we can enjoy God, that the sovereign God, the good God, the holy God. The only way we can have access to our Father is in the Spirit through His Son. We need to repent. We need to trust in Christ. And the moment we come to Christ, He removes this heart of stone that doesn't delight in God and replaces it with a heart of flesh that loves God, that delights in God, that delights in His Word. And that's what we need to do. We need to learn to look our Father in the eyes and say, You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good. That's how our satisfaction turns from that general theology to a very personal one where we put our faith in Christ. So that's the first place David finds his satisfaction. He says, God, it's in you. It's in you. But now the surprising thing is verse 3. He also finds his joy and satisfaction in God's people. Look at verse 3. It says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now that should be a shock to you. I thought you just said, all, I have no good apart from you. And now suddenly you say, all my joy is in God's people. Now, which one is it? Is it our God or is it our God's people? Are you contradicting yourself here, David? Remember, no, it doesn't mean here that suddenly he's lost his joy in God and now found his joy in God's people. Really, it's the same joy. Finding his, all his joy in God is also expressed in finding all his joy in God's people. Because when he looks at God's people, he sees images of Christ. He sees images of God. When he looks at the holy ones, remember those, the, the, this is who these people are. They are set apart. They are reflecting the holiness of, the, of his Father. And so when he looks at, at them, he just sees more of God. And that's why he delights in them. Notice the high view he has of believers. I wonder how many of us would have said this about the church. The church, those people are the excellent ones. Right? Who of you would have said it like that? I love it. Charles Spurgeon wrote and said, that title, Your Excellency, more properly applies to the lowest Christian than to the highest governor or to the highest king. Your Excellency. Now, Friday, or for Good Friday, we didn't have a service at our church. We went to a platinum church. How many of you know what a platinum church is? Any of you? Okay, platinum church is when you look around, you see just gray heads, right? Platinum status, right? What's that proverb that says gray hair is the crown, <laughs> Right, that, just see crowns all around me. I was probably the youngest, youngest man in that congregation, but, but you know what, love? I was looking at these excellent ones, these saints. I was seeing that they were very, we were, there was a small church. We, there was just a few handful of people there, and, and we were just sitting there, and we were just worshipping Christ. We were just worshipping Him for His death and His resurrection. And I saw saints lifting their hands in joy, in adoration of their, of their God and my God. You know what? I looked around and said, these are the excellent ones. All my delight is in them. These old people. <laughs> because that's how God feels about us. So not only, this is just a reflection of God's love, right? It's, 
God looks at us and says, these are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. God delights in us. I must say, that, that, that just feels too good to be true. But as we become more like him, we also find our joy in God's people. So that's the one half of the coin. But then verse 4 is the other flip side. is doesn't just find delight in God's people. He also now rejects the fellowship and the worship of the wicked. Look at verse 4. It says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. You see the contrast? He says, Oh my delight, in verse 3, in verse 4, contrasting the, the delight with sorrow. But not just any sorrow. The sorrow is multiplying. So we shouldn't think of unbelievers as their sorrow is just constant. No, their sorrows are multiplying. It's adding. As they add their sin to their lives, so their sorrows are added to them. And brothers and sisters, we can go to the mission field to attest and show the, uh, the truth of this verse. But do we need to go any further than your own life? Do you need to go any further than looking at when you were running after idols? Were you joyful? Were you content? When you have neglected your soul, when you've neglected prayer, when you've neglected heartfelt worship of God, in, instead of run to empty cisterns that can hold no water, were you joyful? Remember, perhaps for that small moment, perhaps you had some pleasure, but you, you know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about that decaying sorrow. Are we not irritable when we're worshiping idols? Are we not discontent? Are we not grumbling? Are we not miserable people? And that's who we are because we are running away from God and running to idols. But I do believe there's a difference between how believers sin and how unbelievers sin. And that is the key in, the, I think, the verb of verse 4. What the verb is, it says, the sorrows of those who run. You see, the idea there is these people are, are greedy. They, they can't wait to go and worship their gods and their idols. And, and believers, we sin, we fall, we worship idols, but what, what's the difference? We don't run. It's almost like we sin sluggishly. It's like we sin, but it's like hesitant. There's a war within us that doesn't want to do this. But even in those seasons where we have that prolonged seasons of disobedience, like David with Bathsheba, God always has his Nathan to bring us back. He always has his discipline that he uses to save us. So, beloved, here's the reality is that when we have our satisfaction in God, when we have our satisfaction in God's people, our cup is full. Our hearts are full. So why do we need to go to other gods? You see, the only reason why you would want another god is if you don't believe God is enough. If you don't believe God is satisfying your heart. Isn't that the first lie, the first temptation? God plants Adam and Eve in the sea of blessing and joy, in the, His pleasures forevermore, in the garden of trees. And, he, and the devil comes and takes the one prohibition and say that God really say you shall not eat of any tree. And so idolatry is covetousness. Idolatry is when we stop losing or we lose our joy in God and start looking to these things to satisfy us. And notice the end of verse 4 when it says, Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. There's a very healthy distance between a believer and, a and the wicked. We don't even partake of their offerings. We don't even take the names of their idols or their gods upon our lips. I'm not talking about being isolated from the world, right? Jesus says we are in this world, but not of this world. That's what I'm speaking. I'm speaking of that, of this world, of partaking with them. But even when, even so-called Christians that are, have 
drifted away from the true gospel that are worshipping idols, we don't partake in their offerings. We don't partake in those services. So, for example, we don't go to ancestral worship or ancestral services as if that's okay because we're taking the offerings of blood. Right? We don't go to the ZCC, so we don't attend the Jehovah Witness. We don't go to the Roman Catholic Church's service. We refuse because there's false gospels there. We don't even take their names upon our lips. We say we need to be pure. We need to be holy. And so that's how David finds his satisfaction. He says, in God, in his people, and I'm, I'm, I'm removed. I don't want to even take the wicked's name and their, their gods on my lips. But let's thirdly look at David's security. Now David's security in verses 5 to 8. So now from verses 5 to 8, David reflects on the security he enjoys by considering his inheritance, the counsel God gives him, and God's presence. So the first thing where David finds security in is in his inheritance. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. It says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. So David says, Lord, you are my chosen portion. You are my cup. You are my inheritance. Remember, I have no good apart from you, and that's why I want you. I want to inherit you. And yet, what does he have in his hand? He says, you hold my lot in your hand. Remember, that's how the Israelites divided the land. The, the land was divided by lot. You had to cast the lot, and where the lot was, has fallen, that would be your piece of land. That is your inheritance. But now David says, my lot is in your hand. So now connect that to Proverbs 16, verse 33. I love this verse. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So if God casts the lap, of the uh, cast a lot, it always turns out the way he wants it to. So it's another way for David to say, Lord, my future is in your hands. Wherever you decide for me to live, wherever you want me to be, my lot is in your hands. You will cast and it will turn out where you want me to be. So Lord, my future is in your hands. So we read in verse 6. Look at verse 6. He says, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Right? I love the King James. I have a goodly inheritance. This is a good, this is a beautiful inheritance. So he says, I will have a beautiful land because of God. Now, here we need to ask, wait, I thought he just said, God, you are my inheritance. But now he says the land is his inheritance. So what? Which one is it? Are we inheriting God or are we inheriting the land? Which one? And the short answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> right? It's both. Remember when he, says, when he says, I have no good apart from you, it doesn't mean that God's not going to give him any good things or any good land. No, the Lord is his supreme satisfaction and the Lord gives him land. The Lord gives him physical blessings. But again, what makes the land good is that he will enjoy God on that land. He doesn't want the land without God because he has no good apart from him. So dear brothers and sisters, this is also true for us. How secure is our inheritance? Our futures is secure. Our lot is in our Father's hands. Remember, we did a whole sermon on this verse. Ephesians 1 verse 11 says, In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. We have an inheritance, and then... Paul said he places God's absolute sovereignty underneath our inheritance. He says we've been predestined. He works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we will achieve. We will have our inheritance. Nothing can stop us from inheriting our inheritance. 
That's our assurance. Our future even on earth is secure because we know the promises of God. Romans 8 verse 28. What does it say? It says, and we know. Do you know? Do you know this? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So, beloved, don't fear the future. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Your, your job is simple. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. You know what those things are? The things that the Gentiles were seeking. The things that the Gentiles are seeking after because they believe they, they, they don't have a father in heaven who will take care of them. All those things God will give to you. So seek him. So our inheritance is secure. Number two, David also is secured within God's counsel. David also is secure in the wise counsel of the Lord. Look at verse 7. It says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. So the idea there is by day, David meditates on the law of God with his eyes open. And when his eyes are closed at night, his heart instructs him. In other words, as he's meditating on the law of God, it's as if the law is keeping on teaching him. It's with his eyes open, he studies God's wisdom, he studies God's counsel, and with his eyes closed, he's meditating, and his heart is teaching him what God's counsel is. And beloved, there's a, that's what I think we miss by understanding God's will, by hearing God's voice, is that we don't meditate on God's law. We don't meditate on his word. There's an interesting connection between meditation and doing God's law in Joshua 1 verse 8. Just look at this verse. It's a very key verse. Joshua 1 verse 8. It says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. What will be the result of that? So that you will be able to be careful, that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. You see the connection between meditation and knowing what to do? Is as we meditate, that's now we will be able to know what to do. What is our problem is we read our Bibles and the Bible is shut and we rush to prayer and we're not thinking, we're not meditating on what we've read. Or even at night, when we come to, in, at night, when we're just laying down, we're not thinking over what God's law says. We're just too quick. So we need to learn to connect our reading to prayer by meditating. We need to slow down. We need to think over. And that's how God counsels us. That's how God secures us. That's how God guides us into what His will is for our lives. Don't you want that kind of intimacy where you hear God speak to you in the morning when you open His Word and you hear God speak to you in your heart when you meditate on His law on your bed? This is the kind of counsel God wants for us. This is what He wants us to know. God revealing Himself to us by day and by night. We have a sufficient scripture to lead us in God's Word. And, but here's the third thing David is securing, and that's God's presence. God's presence in verse 8. He says, I've set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Do you see that? So David says, Lord, you are in front of me. I'm trusting you. I'm following you. But also you are at my right hand. Remember, the right hand is symbolic for a position of authority, a position of privilege. So David says, when I need counsel, you are my position of authority. I run to you, Lord. I trust in you. I want your counsel and your wisdom for this decision, this battle. So, but the picture is almost as God encompasses David. He's, he's in front of him. He's at his right hand. He's all around him. And notice that it's because of God's presence with David and around David that he feels secure. Look at the end of verse 8. It says, set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. 
Again, think of that picture in your mind. If God surrounds David, if anything wants to get to David, it first has to pass through God. It first has to come through his presence. It first has to pass through his permission. And beloved, that's still true for us today. Nothing can touch you unless by divine permission, unless God allows, unless God gives the order, really, the command for it to come. And that's true. God is everywhere. He's in us by His Spirit. So, beloved, God is not just somebody that's going to help helped you in the past. He's not just somebody that's going to help you in the future. God is a very present help. Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. He's right here with us. He is at this moment securing us, leading us in His counsel and His presence. Let's close our time now together with the last point. And now we're coming to David's secret. David's secret in verses 9 to 11. So these closing verses almost function like a conclusion on everything he says. Look at the first word of verse 9. It should say, therefore. So he's just mentioned this list of blessings because the Lord is his good, because he finds his goodness in all his pleasure in the saints, because he has an inheritance and counsel and the Lord's presence. Because of all of that, therefore, look at what he says now, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. He says, my heart is joyful, inner joy, and I, my flesh is secure. Outer security, inner joy, outer security. That's shalom. That's a whole rounded kind of peace. And in verse 10, David gives us the reason why he can have this inner and external kind of joy and peace. In verse 10, it says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your holy ones see corruption. So David is confident the Lord won't allow him to stay in the grave. You won't abandon me in the grave. His body won't see corruption. And David, so David is confident that God is going to answer verse 1. He's confident when he says, preserve me, O God, that God is going to do that. That he won't even allow him to die or to go to the grave. Now this is where... We should be careful. Yes, we should interpret this correctly, right? When David is looking, this is an immediate psalm that is applicable to him because he says, my soul, right? This is applicable to him, but he's also looking forward to the greater David. So it's applicable to the immediate David, but he's also looking forward to the son of David, the son of David, where this will literally be fulfilled, where his body will not even see corruption. For David, it was fulfilled in a temporary sense, for Christ, it will be fulfilled in a permanent sense. And this is how the apostles really connected the dots. Listen to what, how the apostles quote this verse in Acts 2, verse 29. They say, brothers, this is now Peter's sermon. It says, brothers, I may, I may, say, with, with, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. In other words, he, he, he was, his body was corrupting. <laughs> so that verse didn't, wasn't fulfilled in its entirety. He's in the tomb and he's dead. But being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. See, Christ's flesh didn't even see corruption. And now listen to Paul. Paul did the same thing in Acts 13, verse 35. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, 35 to 36, says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers, and now the key phrase, 
and saw corruption. David saw corruption. This psalm wasn't fulfilled in its entirety with David. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Do you see the same point? So Peter and Paul makes the same point. He says, it was fulfilled in a temporary sense to David, but he was looking forward to the greater David, the son of David. And beloved, here is the secret to joy, the secret to have secure joy. It's this, the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ. If there is one thing that can threaten our joy, it's death. Isn't that so true? That's the one thing that robs us of every joy. Because when you're dead, there's nothing to enjoy. You're dead, right? But God will show us the path of life. He will show us out of the grave into resurrection. Look at verse 11. It says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now it's amazing when you consider this. David ends the psalm the way he began. He says, verse 1, Lord, preserve me. And God says, okay, you want preservation? I'll raise you from the dead. That's kind of, that's quite, you want, you want life? I'll give you life forever. I'll give you life eternal. That, talk about preservation there, right? And that's, but again, remember, our resurrection is closely linked to Christ's resurrection. There would be no resurrections if it wasn't for Christ's resurrection. His resurrection is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, his resurrection is the first in a line of many to come, of all of ours to come. But more than that, that resurrection that connects us to Christ is now leading us to Christ himself. That path of life, that path of joy where we are going is going back to God. We are going into his presence where there is fullness of joy. So because of the resurrection, we can also say, God can also say that to you. We can echo these words, Lord, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. I cannot stay dead, for I've been united to Christ, and our resurrection will lead us to Christ. Listen to this psalm, Psalm 73, verse 25. It says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, and beloved, it will. It will fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Beloved, this is what God's saying to all of us. You want protection? I'll raise you from the dead. You know, when you, you pray for a piece, you pray for a house, you pray for a land, you want, a, you want an inheritance. And God says, you want inheritance? I'll give you the world. Blessed are the meek. Well, they will inherit the land. No, they will inherit the whole world. Right? You will have everything. You want joy? Okay, I'll give you fullness of joy. I'll lead you into my presence where there's pleasures at my right hand forever. So that's the secret to secure joy. God himself is our boundary. He is the boundary of our joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And the good news is no matter how many tears we have to cry in this world, no matter how many sorrows we have to endure in this trial, no matter how long we have to live in this Genesis 3 world, Jesus rose from the dead. And he is making all things new. And today we are coming closer to that day. So, beloved, listen to me. Leave your idols. Leave the false gods. Leave the sin that you're so quickly running to to find your joy in. These things cannot satisfy you. Repent. Turn away from your sins. Turn away from things that just gives you temporal pleasure and lasting sorrow. And come to Christ. Christ calls you out of the grave. He calls you to rise up and to follow Him. He says, come and believe in me. Trust in me.
and your sins will be wiped away. Your sins will be cleansed. You can know me, for I will be your good. I will not abandon you to Sheol. I will raise you up, and you will be with me forever and ever and ever. So come and drink without price and eat without money. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your, your precious word and thank you for showing us Christ. And Lord, we have so many earthly needs, we have so many earthly desires, and oh Lord, we know that we can come to you with them, and we want to pray for those, Lord, and ask you to preserve us and to keep us. But also, Lord, I pray that you will turn our hearts away from these temporary joys that so quickly ends it so quickly vanishes into thin air before our very eyes and turn to christ the source of all joy the fountain of all joy that we might find him the bread of life if we eat of him we know we will never hunger we will never thirst again lord help us to leave our idols and leave our sin behind and to follow him on the path of life well, thank you that you secure us, that you have promised us an inheritance and you counsel us, you lead us. And we know, Lord, that you will one day receive us with a new body into your eternal kingdom. So, Father, keep us, keep us safe. Help us to endure till the end until we see you face to face. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.